the CNN photographer got his request approved, and he quickly used his cell phone to call the local airport to charter a flight. And he was told a twin-engine airplane would be waiting for him at the airport. And arriving at the airfield, he spotted a plane warming up near the hangar. And he jumped in with his bag, slammed the door shut, and shouted, let's go. And the pilot taxied out, swung the plane into the wind, and they took off. And once he was in the air, the photographer told the pilot, fly over the valley and make low passes so I can take pictures of the fires on the hillside. Why, asked the pilot. Because I'm the photographer for CNN, he responded, and I need to get some close-up shots. The pilot was strangely silent for a moment and finally stammered. So what you're telling me is you're not my flight instructor. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> we make a lot of wrong assumptions, don't we? We make a lot of wrong assumptions. Well, ladies, while we got to take a little vacation from our study this past week, David was not so fortunate. When, when we left him two weeks ago, he was running for his life from his son, Absalom. God had ordained to thwart the, quote, good counsel of the traitor Ahithophel to bring calamity on Absalom. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel had been rejected, he saddled up his donkey, went home, set his house in order, and hung himself. And it was a tragic end for an undoubtedly able man, but the report of his death should fortify the faith and hope of God's people. Well, why is that? Because Ahithophel was not merely a government official who committed political folly, but he was an adversary of the Lord's chosen king and therefore an enemy of the Lord and his kingdom. His life and death are testimony to the fact that you cannot attack the kingdom of God without sooner or later being crushed by the power of God. Well, David's friend Hushai had given the advice which Absalom took, and his battle strategy, which completely appealed to Absalom's vanity, bought David and his followers the time they needed to escape. And this precious time allowed them to organize and prepare for the guerrilla warfare at which David excelled. And our text in verse 24 tells us that David came to Mahanaim, uh, which was Ishbosheth's old capital. And Absalom and his massive army, led by Amasa, are in hot pursuit. And the writer gives us a brief family genealogy to point out the fact that Joab and Amasa are cousins. Um, it says, now when David had come to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, of the sons of Ammon, Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought, okay, here's their list. Beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curd, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Okay, I think they must have had a few semi-trucks to bring all that. I don't, I don't know. They brought a lot of stuff. This, but what I don't want you to miss is this is a fascinating group of supporters. And the first one who's named is Shobi the son of Nahash, and he is now king of the Ammonites. Now, this is a most amazing thing. You remember, David and Nahash had been on relatively friendly terms, and when he died, his son Hanun took the throne, and Hanun foolishly humiliated the official delegation David sent to mourn Nahash's death. And this led to yet another war between Israel and the Ammonites, 
And in fact, it was this war with the Ammonites uh, that David decided to avoid, and his decision to stay home in chapter 11 led to the Bathsheba and Uriah fiasco. So David delegated the battle against the Ammonites to Joab's command. They were finally defeated. And all of a sudden, we have not uh, we now have Shobi, who is probably the brother of Hanun, on the throne. And he's eager to come to David's aid when he's opposed by Absalom. That's quite a surprise. Now, Machir, the guy from Lodabar, he'd been sympathetic to King Saul because he provided a haven for Mephibosheth. And Barzillai was a wealthy octogenarian. And that would have been pretty old back in that day. So Shobi's a pagan, Machir's a Saul loyalist, and Barzillai is an aging senior citizen. God brings support from surprising places, doesn't he? An army marches on its stomach, and their provisions pave the way. So David numbered the people who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David arranged them in units of commanders and three generals over each of the fighting units. And he sent the people out, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, his brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite, who finally got the action that he had been wanting. Uh, and the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. Well, David has arranged the troops for battle, and he's ready to go. But the people said, you should not go out, for if we indeed flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, uh, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better for you to be ready to help us from the city. But David, you're the reason we're here. If they kill you, they win. You can't be out there with us. If they wipe out half of us, it doesn't matter. But if they kill you, it's over. They win. So the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and thousands. But as the troops were about to go out to war on behalf of their king, David has some final words for them. And it's not the usual pep talk with all the hype and focus on victory. David's charge to Joab, Abishai, and Ittai is very different. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And we can't begin to imagine the jolting effect David's words had on the men who heard them. David's generals and the men who were fighting for David had fled Jerusalem and run for their lives in order to support their king. Surely David could not be serious about not killing the man who was trying to kill them all and seize the throne. Absalom was the one who put everyone in danger. And David's charge concerning his son introduces an uneasy tension into the story, doesn't it? His orders to spare the life of Absalom put chills down the spines of his generals. What is David thinking? Well, David loves his boy, and he is perhaps thinking that maybe there could be a resolution to this conflict if I could just talk to him. Not the fact he didn't talk to him, for several years, that has nothing to do with his thinking at this point, but maybe he's thinking things could just go back to the way they were before. Well, the problem was it wasn't just the generals who heard. All the people heard when the king charged the commanders concerning Absalom. He tells this to the generals, but the marching men hear this order too, spares life. And that's what they are thinking about as they march out to battle. 
Well, then the passage tells us the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David, and the slaughter that day was great. 20,000 men, third the population of Clearwater. Huge slaughter. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And basically, we get a summary of the battle. In spite of David's pathetic charge to his troops, the army fights courageously for their king, and Absalom's forces suffer a great defeat, not only at the hands of David's men, but even from the forest itself. Absalom's men are not cut out for this kind of warfare. David knew that if he met the larger army on flat terrain and they were fighting man for man, there's no way they would win. So he said, let's make use of the terrain. Let's find a forested area and let's divide into three groups. That way they're not going to be able to guess which group David is in and they're not going to know where to focus their efforts and it's going to throw them into confusion. It will reduce the influence of their superior numbers and all of the strategy worked in favor for David. The battle itself, though, is not what is most important to the author, because the battle is described in just three short verses. Absalom is the one front and center, and in fact, he's really been the focus of our text since chapter 13. And the author is going to use ten verses to describe the unusual demise of Absalom. This is what the writer wants us to know. That is what is important about this story. So verse 9 says, Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him kept going. All of a sudden, for whatever reason, Absalom is all by himself. No one else is mentioned. None of his men seemed to be around to attempt a rescue, probably because they were running for their lives, too. Well, why was he on a mule? Well, the mule in that day was the mode of kingly transport. And as hard as, hard as it is for us to imagine, riding on a mule made, made Absalom look like a king. Absalom is all about image. He's all about looking kingly while everyone else is on foot. And his desire to look regal is his undoing. Now this is so bizarre, I can almost see this in my mind's eye as a cartoon. I can see his flowing locks, maybe covering his eyes, he can't really see, his head stuck in the tree, but this long hair is blowing in the wind, and I kind of see his legs running in place, his, his hands trying to grasp the, the branches to pull himself out of this predicament. But it just, it's almost comical, and it would be if what the writer was trying to communicate were not so sad. And Absalom, the poster boy, who is famous for being famous, is stuck by his head in a tree. There's nothing he can do about it. Well, the question is, why isn't this funny to the author? And it all hinges on the word hanging. He was left hanging between heaven and earth. Now, the Hebrew word here is masan, which means placed. And the very first time it's used in the Bible is back in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 17. But I'm going to read you 16 and 17. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed, same word, them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. 
Here is the picture. God placed Absalom's head in the branch of the tree. This was not a coincidence or bad luck for Absalom. It is the hand of God working in judgment against the man who went to war against God's anointed king. And this scene of Absalom hanging between heaven and earth evokes another picture of God's judgment that we find in Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the Hebrew reader would have picked up on that immediately. To be hung on a tree is to be cursed by God. And even though no human has yet put Absalom to death, God has shown that Absalom is under his curse by hanging him on a tree. And we see the providence of God through the mule, the tree, his hair, his vanity, his big glory. God has used all of this for his downfall. And this gives us a vivid picture of the verse, God is opposed to the proud. And Absalom is a blatant example of pride, unhidden pride. And God makes sure that we get the message by basically saying, I myself will place and hang him on a tree to show you that he is under my curse. So Absalom is suspended between heaven and earth with nowhere to go. Verse 10 says, when a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in a tree. And this soldier had to figure out what on earth to do next. He remembered David's command to deal gently with the boy. So he says, I'm going to go tell the general. Joab can figure out what to do. So that's exactly what he does. He tells Joab, I know where Absalom is. I saw him hanging in an oak tree. And Joab responds, you saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right then and there? I'd have given you 10 pieces of silver and a belt, a promotion. Joab goes absolutely nuclear. He can't believe it. He says, what is wrong with you? Absalom is the reason we're out here. This is the whole point of this battle. Why didn't you just tell me that you found him stuck in a tree, you killed him, and here's his head? You mean to tell me you saw him and you didn't do anything about it? I would have rewarded you for doing this. You're not getting anything now. Well, this man is no dummy, and he doesn't back down one bit. Just listen to how he argues. Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver, even if you offered me a hundred times this, nothing doing. Well, why? I would not put out my hand against the king's son, for in our, our hearing, the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, protect for me the young man Absalom. King's given an order. Do you find me to be a fool? Do you think I'm totally ignorant? The king said he's to be spared. I don't care what you offer me. Well, not only that, he goes on to say in verse 13, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, there's nothing hidden from the king. You yourself would have stood aloof. Meaning, if I had done it and my name was out of the official report, the king would have figured it out. There would have been no sparing me. It would have been my life for Absalom's life. And he goes even further and tells Joab, you wouldn't have defended me anyway. And I did the right thing. Well, Joab will have none of this. I will not waste time here with you. I don't have time for this. Something's got to be done. So Joab picks up three spears, gets his armor bearers together, and he heads out to find Absalom. He thrusts three spears through the heart of Absalom while he's yet alive in the midst of the oak tree. And the ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom, and they killed him. Joab says, I've got no time for debate. This is no time for niceties. This is war. The way to end the battle is to kill Absalom, and when he's dead, it's over. The army will flee, 
once that one person is dead, it's game over. They're going to leave and go home. Now, isn't it ironic that it would be Joab who would kill Absalom? It was Joab who had orchestrated amnesty for Absalom and brought him back to Jerusalem. It was Joab who obtained greater freedom for Absalom and brought him into the king's presence. And yet, for all Joab had done for him, Absalom set to take away the throne from his own father. He put Amasa as commander over Israel's forces. Um, staggering. And it was likewise Joab who, under the orders from David, had Uriah killed in battle without raising a sword of protest. And now here, this military commander kills David's own son in direct violation of his orders. Well, with Absalom's death, it was all over but the shouting. So Joab blew the trumpet, the shofar, and all the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained the people. Come on back. It's over. It's done. And they took Absalom and cast him into a deep pit in the forest and erected over him a very great heap of stones. Then all Israel fled each to his own town. Now, this is the second indication in the text that the writer wants us to see that Absalom is under the curse of God. He has now placed Absalom in the same category as Achan in Joshua chapter 7 for taking things under the ban. And for Achan, there's no family tomb, just a heap of stones. Absalom is in the same category as the enemy king of Ai in Joshua chapter 8. Joshua hung the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, he gave the command. They took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones. And Absalom is also in the same category as the five enemy kings in Joshua chapter 10 who were hung on trees until evening and then their bodies were taken down and they were thrown into a cave with a large pile of stones over the entrance. This message is very clear. Anytime someone's buried under a large pile of stones, it is a sign of God's curse. Strike one, he was hung on a tree. Strike two, he's thrown into a pit and covered with a heap of stones. Verse 18, uh, now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to preserve my name. And he named the pillar after his own name and called it Absalom's monument to this day. I think Franco did that in Spain in the Civil War and he created a monument long before he died and it's there to this day. Okay, in 2 Samuel, 14, we read that to Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. Well, what does this tell us if he set up a monument to himself because he has no children? It means that his sons are all dead at this point. Maybe they died in childhood, but we don't, we don't really know. But God did not allow him to have any male offspring to carry on the family name. And again, this is another biblical sign that the author is giving us to show that Absalom is under a curse. Now, some of you may have lost children. Do not apply this to yourself. That is not the point at all. But in this culture, this context, the Hebrew reader would have clearly understood what the author intended to make clear. And that was, this was the end of Absalom, his family, his reign. It was over for him. So the question is, why? Why has God cursed Absalom? Well, we know that he was a sinner like us, but it goes far beyond that. He certainly had not honored his father. He had mangled the fifth commandment beyond recognition. He wanted his father dead. This isn't an insolent teenager who is just talking back. He wanted to eradicate his father from the earth so he could be the king. 
And what does God say about those who will not honor their fathers? Deuteronomy 27, 16 says, Cursed is the man who dishonors his father or mother. Well, what else did he done? He had slept with his father's wives, breaking Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11. Deuteronomy 27, 20. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife. He had already done these two things, which were pretty high on God's curse list. And since David wouldn't act, God did. This man is under my curse. I'm going to show it to the world. This man has flaunted my authority and my word, and this is what it leads to. That was basically what God was saying. This story is not about some unusual circumstances that just happened to work out in David's favor. The biblical writer wants us to look at this and see that God cursed Absalom and he made it plain to see for anyone who knows anything about the Bible. It wasn't just coincidence with a mule and a tree, but this was the hand of God in action. Well, we now have the end of Absalom and the end of the rebellion. But we are faced with the uncomfortable knowledge that victory for David also means the death of his son. And the writer uses the word news or tidings eight times in just a few verses which convey this tension. Is it good news or is it bad news? Will David cheer or will he weep? Verse 19 says, Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Please let me run and bring the king news that the Lord has freed him from the hand of his enemies. Now, Ahimaaz was one of the loyal runners who had risked his life to run an intelligence message from occupied Jerusalem to the fugitive David. And because he's loyal, he is thrilled to no end of the victory, and he desperately wants to be the one entrusted with telling David the good news. But Joab said to him, you are not the man to carry news this day. You shall carry news another day. However, you, you shall carry no news today because the king's son is dead. Now, Joab, for all his ruthlessness, has enough sensitivity to know it's not as simple as that. It is perfectly true that the Lord has delivered David from the power of his enemies, but it's also true that the king's son is dead. And Joab knows that to bring bad news to David as if it were good news is a risky thing. Perhaps he remembers the Amalekite who told David with glee that he had uh, assisted in the suicide of King Saul. What did David do? He executed that man. Or what about the man who, beaming and expecting a reward, told David they'd assassinated Saul's son Ishbosheth? Well, the only reward they got was the chopping block. No, no, says Joab to Ahimaaz, I'm not going to wish that on you. He was not going to put Ahimaaz in that situation. You are not going. I'm going to send someone who's expendable. So we found out who that person was. That was the Cushite. In verse 21, who was an Egyptian, go and tell the king what you've seen. So the Cushite bowed to Joab and ran. Well, you know, that is not the answer that Ahimaaz wanted. And he tries again. Well, whatever happens, please let me run also after the Cushite. And Joab cannot fathom why Ahimaaz wants to do this. And he says, why would you run, my son, since you'll have no reward for going? And that word reward is also, again, the word news or tidings. And it's like he's going, well, the news is already going to get there. You're not even going to have any news to share is basically what he's saying. So Joab finally gives up and shrugs his shoulders and says, okay, run, go, go. So Ahimaaz takes off and he runs by way of the plain and it's further, but it's flatter, so it ends up being a faster route. And the Cushite goes through the forest, it takes him a little bit longer. And Ahimaaz arrives before the Cushite. So David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall 
and raised his eyes and looked and saw a man running by himself. And the watchman called and told the king. The king said, oh, if he's there by himself, there's good news in his mouth. Well, why would that be? Because if there were lots of people running, it would mean they were routed and they would need to get inside and shut the gate and prepare for a siege. But there was only one guy running, so he came nearer and nearer. Then the watchman saw another man running, which would have been the Cushite, and he called to the gatekeeper and said, Behold, another man is running by himself. And the king said, Well, this one is also bringing good news. Two messages are coming. And David must be thinking, Well, you know, I did split the army into three groups. Maybe we're going to get news of two victories. <laughs> and then the watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. Now, I can promise you as a runner, that you do know the gates of the people you run with, and you can spot them far away by their stride. <clears throat> Even the shadow you can spot. So the king said, oh, this is a good man, and he comes with good news. You know, David is grasping at straws, hoping against hope. Just remember, the last time Ahimaaz came, he didn't have good news. He told David to flee to the other side of the river and prepare for battle, but here, David is hopeful. I hope it's good news. So Ahimaaz called and said to the king, all is well. And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. And he said, blessed is the Lord your God who's delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord the king. Victory, we have won. Well, instead of saying, that's good to hear, fantastic, wonderful, do we have any losses? Can I get you some water? The first words out of David's mouth or is it well with the young man Absalom? Is he safe? I don't care about the victory. I want to know about my boy. So Ahimaaz is taken aback and he stammers, ah, Well, when Joab sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I didn't know what it was. And he tells the truth, but he doesn't give the entire story. I'm not sure I can tell you everything that happened. And that's basically how our Bible translates it. But if you go to the, in the Hebrew, Ahimaaz's report basically degenerates to gibberish. He is completely tongue-tied and flummoxed and has no idea what to say. So Ahimaaz, the light dawns, and he now understands Joab's reluctance to send him as a messenger. And he finally realizes he does not want to be the one to tell David that his son was dead. So the king said, well, stand aside. I got another messenger here. The Cushite arrived and said, let my lord the king receive good news. For the lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, same question, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. Maybe as a foreigner, the Cushite was unaware of the background. Maybe he was one of the few who hadn't heard David's public command to deal gently with Absalom. But for him, the death of Absalom was just part of the good news. After all, a war is a war is a war. And a rebel who had lived by the sword died by the sword. He goes on with joy and confidence. May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you be like that young man. Well, as the Cushite speaks, each word strikes the king with terrible impact. It's as if, as if the lethal spears Joab had plunged into Absalom's chest were driven into David's heart. Have you ever felt like that when someone's brought you just devastating news? It's just so painful it's physical. He is utterly convulsed. He's devastated. He's gripped by waves of unguarded grief. This is just elemental. It's basic. It's 
the cry of a human heart that's torn in two. And as he makes his lonely way up the stairs to the little room above the gate, he weeps and weeps and he weeps. And there may be some of us who have cried like that or sat with others in such grief. And it is the scream of agony from a broken human heart. No longer is it the young man Absalom. It is, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would that I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. All of the old regrets and betrayals and the possibilities and the might have beens of the what-ifs, the shattered hopes, the emotional debris of family life are crashing over him in waves. And the paradox in this passage is staggering. There are no easy answers. Absalom's death satisfies uh, the demands of justice. He deserved to die. And there must be moral accountability. The wicked must be punished. But here the writer is making plain that the kingdom of God cannot coexist with her enemies. Uh, Ralph Davis said, if the kingdom of God under God's chosen king is to be saved, then the enemy who assaults that kingdom must be destroyed. God gives no secure salvation to his church unless he brings decisive judgment on her enemies. You know, Joab was right in killing Absalom. He's right politically, he's right morally. And we ought to cheer when the king's enemy dies because justice has been served. And yet, and yet, while it is good news for the king when a rebel is destroyed, can it ever be good news for a father when his son dies? Can it? Can it really? For the king's enemy can only be destroyed if the king's son dies. The demands of justice could only be satisfied with the shattered longings of a father's love. Now, David got just about everything wrong in his nurture of Absalom. He made every mistake a parent can make. Absalom broke the fifth commandment every hour of his life, but David says, he's still, he was my son. And this is a terribly unsatisfying end to the story of Absalom, isn't it? It is horribly unsettling. Down-to-earth Joab with the demands of justice, heartbroken David with the longings of love. But let me ask you, could you write a better ending to the story? Could you make up an answer of, uh, of, that would satisfy the longings of a father's love and the demands of the king's justice? You know, a universe without justice would be a terrible place, and a universe without love doesn't bear thinking about. Ladies, we waited a thousand years for the ending of this story to be written. David spoke better than he knew when in verse 33 he said, Would I had died instead of you. Ladies, in this story, you and I are Absalom. We've sinned against God. We are rebels fighting to be our own lords. We are the enemy of the king, deserving justice. Let me remind you of the picture painted for us. Absalom hung on a tree. Absalom pierced through his side. Absalom died an ignominious death. Absalom buried under a pile of rocks. Absalom dying for his sin. That's what we deserve. But you know what? Those of us who trust Christ were also beloved daughters of the king. Let me remind you of another picture. Jesus hung on a tree. Jesus was pierced through his side. Jesus died an ignominious death. Jesus was buried in a tomb with a huge rock rolled over the entrance. Absalom died for his own sin and the evil he committed. Jesus didn't die for his sin, but as the payment for the sins of sinners like you and me. He died to make us part of the royal family. 
And the great and glorious news that we just celebrated is that death could not hold him and the grave could not contain him. Hallelujah. A thousand years later, David's greater son wrote the ending to our story. He died instead. And as he died, the demands of justice were satisfied forever and the longings of love could be fulfilled at last. The story of Absalom's death ends at the cross of Jesus Christ. There is a Savior who, because he has dealt with sin, can deal gently with sinners. There is a Savior whose Father longs to be Father to you and me. Do you know him? Have you trusted him? Have you placed your faith in Jesus and his death on the cross? Oh my, I have application questions, but I think we'll just hand them out and we'll stop now. Father, I thank you for this message and the picture of the great salvation that you paid for us and how we can choose to pay for our own sins and be your enemies forever and eternity, or we can trust in the death of your son that came at such great price. And we can be your daughters forever and ever. I, I pray that um, you would drive home this lesson into our hearts, that you would give us assurance that we belong to you. And if there's any woman here who needs to put her faith in you, Lord, I pray that you give her the courage, the conviction, and the faith to do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.